This morning, our text is going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Would everyone please stand? For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everyone back. Um, it's been a it's been a crazy month for weather, hasn't it? I mean, I, I saw the the weather service said something like eleven blizzards this winter, something like triple the normal average. So, fantastic. The normal average is a little too much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good to have everybody here. Uh, in the event that you don't know me, and and that's that's plausible. Uh, my name is Kent. I am a recent graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, this is my wife, Tiffany, and our two children, Lily and Caleb. And it is my great privilege to bring you the Word of God today. So uh, before we dig in to the Word, let's, let's pray and ask Him for His help. Well, Father, we, we come to you now for what you have to say, for your Word. So I, I acknowledge that all of my words are dead. All of my words are useless. Um, there's nothing I have to say that would take a sinner's heart and make it pure. That would force Christ's love into the hearts and minds in anyone in, in a way that causes them to go out and live for you. And so I pray that as, as we look at your word, Lord, and as we look at your son, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would overshadow all of my words and, and have them be just what you would have them be. So that's not me who is heard, but rather you. We ask these things for your son's sake. Amen. Well, this is the third sermon in our, our gospel series. Um, Three out of four. So, so next week will be our, our final one. But we're, we're taking this, this short pause since Caleb had shoulder surgery and everything else to, to really just dig into the gospel. Uh, the gospel is the message. It is, it is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is this gospel that God has chosen to save men and women, to take their hearts and reshape them. That is the means by which he works. So if we want Christians and churches who have an impact on the world around us, we must come back to the gospel. There are no substitutes. There is no other route. We must be gospel-centered churches, or we must be prepared to be no real church at all. And so we began in our first week learning about who God is, about his glory, we focused in on, on two key words, holy and creator. When we say God is holy, we mean there is none like him. He and he alone is eternal, uncreated, all-powerful, all-knowing. And he alone is creator. Everything else is creature. 
This means that God and God alone is king. He is sovereign over his creation. He has rights, permissions as creator that no one else has. He needs no permission from anyone or anything. The world is his and he administers in that world justice perfectly because he is perfectly righteous. And we praise him for that. Last week, we turned to looking at who, uh, from who God is to who we are, the state of man. We saw the extremity of our condition. We looked at how beautiful things were before Genesis chapter 3, before the fall. How man was superbly alive, like you and I can just barely understand. How we were royalty on the earth set in place to rule over all of creation underneath the lordship of God, the great king. And we were connected, perfectly connected, connected to God and to each other. Perfect, effortless harmony existed in these relationships. But then in the fall of man, in that first sin, we saw all of this change. In disobeying God, we saw a change from royalty to rebels. Refusing to acknowledge God as king and determining ourselves better suited to that task. And instead of being lovingly connected to God and to one another, our relationships became broken with these chasms between them. Yes, between God and humanity, but also between man and woman. All of our relationships were twisted, derelict, stopped. And this is indicative of our ultimate reality coming out of the fall. And that is the fact that we are spiritually dead. Humanity as a whole is spiritually dead. Spiritually dead people do not birth spiritually alive people. From the time of Adam and Eve, each of us has inherited that nature. That's what we looked at next. We looked at the the condition of sin in ourselves, in our own lives. And we saw that in our own sins, we we see the same selfishness, that that morbid self-focus that would have us place ourselves on the throne of God that destroys our relationships and at the, at the very least makes our relationships a burden instead of a joy. And this isn't because we need to make better decisions or try harder to be better people. That conclusion, that idea only works off of the basis that people everywhere are basically good at their core, but that is not the case. It is because sin has corrupted our desires, the very heart of who we are. We don't desire what is good for us. We don't desire what God knows is best for us, what glorifies him and is healthy for us. Our desires have been infected. Our hearts are the problem. See, sin is at the root of who we are, not the leaf. It is at the core not the surface. And if we are going to dress ourselves up 
in this in this idea that you know good people go to heaven right or all people are basically good all we're doing is putting a nice suit on a corpse and that may improve the appearance a little bit but that person is still dead and the clothes are as good as filthy rags the moment they touched them if god must punish sinners and we not only sin but so often desire to sin and we cannot change our desires then what hope is there for humanity you may as well eat drink and be merry for tomorrow you might die and the eternal punishment begins but god in all his goodness Patience, mercy and love has made us a way to be alive again. A way back to communion with God, a right and restored relationship with him. And this is our, our third message in the series and it is it is a very heart of the gospel, the good news of the message. Our series thus far and all of human history has been pointing towards driving towards the events that we're going to discuss today and and more rightly said the person that we are going to discuss today. The person who all the prophets of the Old Testament looked forward to, the person whose life splits the timeline of human history, the person who died and lives again even as we speak. the person in whose salvation for a sinful man can be found today we look at the person of Jesus Christ and i have just no hope in saying everything that i want to say in the time that i've been given uh so i'm i'm going to consider this in in a few very short points we're going to work from the the life that i could not live the death i should have died the glorious exchange therein and the assurance of his resurrection those are going to be my main points the life i could not live the death i should have died the glorious exchange and the assurance in his resurrection and like i said we need to get right to it or i'll be out of time so let's begin in your notes with the the life i could not live we to understand the good news of Christ Jesus we must understand who he is because who he is is fundamental to the work that he does and this is something that the world doesn't understand there's there's a lot of evidence that Jesus Christ was a real person a historical person so much so that i i don't think many serious people debate that anymore i don't think the debate lies in in whether or not Jesus Christ existed. So I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but I I do want to reinforce and encourage you by saying that the Christian faith is not one that asks you to believe things blindly, but it is deeply rooted in history. It makes specific and verifiable claims about itself. The scriptures themselves are historic documents. They are just a compilation of eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ. where the debate lies now is not really whether or not he was a person but who he was 
in our society where all ideas and beliefs must be treated as equal, many people will say something along these lines, and, and maybe you've heard it. They'll say, well, Jesus was a great teacher. He had a fantastic moral code, but he is not who Christians say he was. Let me tell you, friends, if, if Jesus Christ is not who he says he is, he is also not a great moral teacher. He is either a liar or a madman, but he is not a great teacher if he is not who he said he was. And who he claimed to be and who he is is God made flesh. He is God the Son incarnate. With that claim made, he is either who he says he is or we ought not pay any attention to anything he says. And I want to I dig into that in, in three little sub-points here. Who he is, his death, and his resurrection. So open up your Bibles now to, to John, the Gospel of John. We'll just go right to chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And I'm going to read the first 14 verses of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is perhaps the most foundational, concise, all-encompassing verses, passage on, on who Christ is. In beautiful terms here, the, the Apostle John, who walked with Jesus, he establishes two essential truths about who Jesus is, that he is truly God and that he is truly man. John describes the word, that is, God the Son, in terms that can only be used of the one true God. In verse 3, John says, All things were made through him, and without him was nothing, was not anything made. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4, you don't need to turn there, uh, but in chapter 4, God is being worshipped by angels, and they declare him to be worthy of that worship 
based on the grounds that he created everything. If the Son of God was not God himself, then that praise in Revelation is being wrongly ascribed. But people will often assert this today in in our naturalistic, materialistic culture. They'll say, well, Jesus was was not divine. He, He couldn't be God. In fact, they'll tell you that Jesus never even said he was. Well, these people are poor readers of their Bible. John says here in the first sentence of his gospel, the word was God. Now, certainly there's not a lot of room for error in that. And someone may say, well, that's that's all well and good for John, but unless Jesus said it, I'm not going to believe it. And that is a dangerous thing to do with your Bible. If you have a Bible that, you you know, the only words you consider inerrant are the red ones, that's a problem. You may as well put it on the shelf and be done with it. All Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. But I'll play. I'll play. Let's look at the claims that Jesus made. Turn with me for some of these. Let's, Let's go to Matthew. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, and I'm just going to read like uh, verses 13, and I might stop at 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for the flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. What is what does Jesus say here when, when, when Peter says that Jesus is Christ? Son of the living God. Did Jesus issue a stern correction in response? Did he say, whoa, don't call me that. Let's not talk like that around me. I'm I'm just a guy. Absolutely not. Did, Did the other disciples jump in and say, Peter, you are off base. This is heresy. No, they didn't. In fact, Jesus himself affirms that this revelation was given to Peter by God himself. That is the highest affirmation possible of the statement. Should have had you keep your thumb there, but if you jump back to John, the book of John, chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, I and the Father are one? Are one. Well, let me tell you, the Jews knew exactly what he meant because they picked up stones to kill him because they were fairly convinced this man in front of them could not be God. But that statement was plainly understood to be exactly that. They understood it as blasphemy and they did what they thought they were commanded to do. They picked up stones to kill the blasphemer. They did the same thing in John 8. When Jesus said, before Abraham was, 
I am. This is my last one. What about Jesus in front of Pilate? We're going to stay in John. Go to chapter 18. Verse 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Sorry, this is a hard passage for me. My Jew, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose was I born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Pilate took Jesus. I'm I'm skipping ahead to, to chapter 19 here. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Verse 5, So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! And When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. Now listen to this. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? You can imagine the fear and the nervousness in Pilate at this point. Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, Pilate goes on to ask Jesus some more questions here. He he goes on to to confront the Jews just a little bit and push back because, because he, has, he has a fear in this situation of just who this man in front of him might be, that he just might be 
who he claims he is. Now, wouldn't that have been a fantastic time for Jesus Christ to say, big misunderstanding. I did not mean to say I was God. I was not trying to put myself on that level. Let's not go through with the rest of this. That would have been an opportune time. But he doesn't do that. In each one of these pieces of scripture that we read is the unveiled claim of Jesus Christ being equal to God. You cannot, as many in the world are want to do, accept Jesus as good and as a good moral teacher and at the same time call him some kind of egotistical liar for the claims that he made about himself. It is one or it is the other. And if you are going to consider those claims, and you must consider those claims to make that decision, you had best be prepared because if he is not a liar... And he is who he said he is. In John chapter 1 and elsewhere, we've seen that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. That is who he claimed to be. That is who he is. Now, you may be surprised to find out, as I was, uh, that the, the first heresies surrounding Jesus didn't deny he was God. That was not the first heresy that popped up. In fact, they denied he was really human. So let that, let that sink in for a minute. They, they said that he only had the appearance of a man, not a real body or a human nature like you and I have, just the appearance of a man. And I find that so interesting because it's the complete opposite of what we would say today, right? Of what skeptics would say today, that he was just a man. The first people to consider who Jesus was found it easier to come to the conclusion that he was a God pretending to be a man than just a man. That was how they were most able to explain the miraculous nature of his life and the works that he did in it. There was no debate if he was a real person. There was no debate if he did those miracles. The question was, could he actually be a man or not? Jesus and his miracles, they are historical, and that evidence demands a verdict. But we'll talk more about that next week. So, Jesus is divine. He's also truly human, not just in appearance, but he is truly human, truly man. Look back in John 1, verse 14. God the Son becomes flesh and dwells among us. God the Son becomes incarnate. And we don't have time to turn to each one of these, but throughout the Gospels, we are presented with a Christ who eats food because he is hungry. He drinks real water because he is actually thirsty. And he actually sleeps because he's actually tired. Jesus Christ was a real historical human being as much as anyone else in the history books. And he was truly God and truly man, the God-man if you will. So why does all this God-man stuff matter? Why have I spent so much time on the God-man? Because of what we talked about last week, the fall. Think back to last Sunday, where we saw the helplessness of the human race. 
Adam is our representative in our covenant relationship with God. And because of the fall, each person is born spiritually dead thereafter. Man cannot help himself, and if God is going to maintain his justice, man must pay the penalty for sin. That is the only way, the only way to break this cycle of spiritually dead people giving birth to spiritually dead people would be for a sinless man to be born. And beyond that, that man would have to go on to live a sinless life. No human, not one in all of pre-Christ history has done that. I know that you know I haven't. And I know that you haven't. It's impossible. If any man were to rectify this situation, it would take the power of God himself intervening to do it because there is no possibility of this in a spiritually dead humanity. And that is the majesty, the wonder, the brilliance of the incarnation. God did it. He did the impossible. He made a way. Fully man, Jesus Christ, can represent us. Fully God, he was able to do so in a way that pleases God entirely. Jesus Christ lives the life we could not live. He is the new Adam of a new covenant. My favorite, maybe second favorite pastor, Alistair Begg, says the danger of a less than human Christ is equal to the danger of a less than divine Christ. We needed both. And that's the truth. My Savior is and had to be both truly man and truly God, and that's who Jesus Christ is. But there's still a problem with all of this. Jesus living a sinless life means there's no condemnation, no punishment waiting for Jesus. That does not solve my problem. That does not solve the problem of humanity in and of itself. I have still sinned, and God must punish that sin. God cannot simply pardon sin. That would be injustice. So this is, this is my second main point, the death that I should have died. We're going to go to Mark now. Mark 14. Mark 14, verse 32. And they went to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Let's just let's pause there in the text. The Lord of the universe is greatly distressed, greatly troubled, sorrowful. Imagine that night with me. The sun has gone down at this point. It's cold enough to warrant a campfire. And as you walk with Jesus to where he normally prays, he begins to weep. He is in agony. You can see the hurt on his face. He cannot conceal it. When you ask him about it, 
He says to you in, in verse 34, he said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Now you see the humanity of the God-man on full display here. Verse 35, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Jesus, distressed, does what he always does. He takes it to his father in prayer. He says, if there is any possible way for this not to happen, then please, please, let's do that instead. Any other route to save fallen humanity, let's do that one. But God knows, Jesus knows, what you and I know, there is no other way. The accountant Luke says an angel came to strengthen Jesus at this point, And after that, he still was crying to his father. Distressed to the point that on this cold night, he was sweating and sweating drops of blood. The sort of physical reaction that can only come from extreme mental and spiritual agony. Shortly after that is when Pilate would whip his back, tearing flesh from it. They, they pushed a crown of thorns onto his head. And then in, in the style that they would punish insurrectionists in that day, anyone who would claim a greater authority than Caesar, they nailed Jesus Christ to a cross and they hung him up outside the city gates so that everybody walking into town could acknowledge just what happens to people who say they have more authority than Caesar. This is what happens to rebels who rebel against their king. An innocent man is being publicly executed just outside the city walls for everyone to see. And more than that, he is the sinless son of God being murdered. And he cries out in an anguished, anguished prayer. He says, why, why have you forsaken me? And we ought to all ask that same thing. Why? He is God. He is sinless. He could have taken a, a whole band of angels to come down and rescue him from this position, from the brutal hands of his own people. Jesus affirms that. He said, he said earlier in the text that no one will take his life from him, but he lays it down. But this can't be right. This can't be okay. He was innocent. And if you're thinking that, you're right. He didn't deserve this. I deserve this. I'm the rebel who asserted to have more authority than the king. I'm the traitor. The cross is the right punishment for me. Not just to some Caesar, to the king of the universe. I'm the traitor. I'm the sinner. That's my penalty. 
Why is Jesus Christ on that cross? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. That's the why. We learned most of what we needed to know in life as Sunday school children. Have you ever fully understood the love of God for you in the person of Jesus Christ? Humanity could not save itself. It needed a new representative. So he left a throne with angels roaring in worship around him to become a man and save men from themselves and from the wrath of God. Humanity had already accumulated a sin of debt, and he laid down his life to pay for it. He lived the life we couldn't. He died the death we should have. And that's the glorious exchange. That's the glorious exchange. He takes our place in front of the judgment seat of God. Last Sunday, I said that the state of man is hopeless because the guilty verdict has already been issued. The guilty verdict stands. But then Jesus Christ, who was declared innocent, steps in, takes the punishment, has the verdict laid on him in our place. He is declared guilty for our sins, suffers for our sins, and what's more, gives us his righteous verdict, gives us the verdict of innocent. He says to the judge, they can have my innocent verdict, I'll pay their debt. That's the verse we had read at the beginning of this service that Rick read for us. I have to move on, but, but brothers and sisters, do you see the love? Do you see the love? God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Almighty, the All-Powerful, All-Wise that we talked about in the first message of this series, loves you. He is strong and he is kind. His love reaches to the heavens, his faithfulness to the skies. He is gentle and lowly in spirit, and none who have come to him have been rejected. That's the Jesus Christ I know. It's at the cross we see the full display of God's wrath and his love. If you ever thought sin was cheap, here you see that it is not. Perfect justice, perfect mercy. In the only way possible, he punishes sin and saves the sinner, but it costs him everything. His blood was the currency, his life the cost. He paid it. All the righteous wrath of God was turned from those that he came to save and poured out on his own son. And God, being a just God, cannot ask a debt to be paid twice. He cannot do that. 
And so when God opens the book of my life to judge it, he will see on top of all the debt, all the curses that I have brought on myself, the words paid in full, stamped in the blood of his only son. We're going to sing this hymn in a moment, but the words go like this. They say, let us love and sing and wonder Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. And if anyone here were still to wonder if that debt was really paid, the proof of all of this, the proof of God's satisfaction is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. With sin punished and the father pleased with his sacrifice, Jesus is made alive again. As surely as he laid his life down, he picked it right back up. We can know that the sacrifice of Christ is effective that God's justice is totally and completely satisfied because there is an empty tomb where Christ once laid. And listen to me closely right now. Make no mistake. I bank my whole life and my whole eternity on the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I do not place my hope in anything less than a risen Christ. This is where there is peace for the guilty conscience we talked about last week. The mind that knows they are guilty, but they don't understand why they feel that way or who they could even pay the debt to. They just know that they've done wrong and they can sense a judgment to come. That person can run to Christ. He will spare you the judgment that you know. Here is rest for the tired soul. You're worn down from either life's hardships or you're worn down from trying to merit salvation, trying to make up for the bad things you've done. Christ is making all things new and he promises rest to his beloved. The end of all fear, all the doubt, all the worry, there is a way back to God. The objective truth of the world is is existent in Christ. All of the the lies and the relativism of sin in the world fall flat against this truth. There is a new life for dead souls. Jesus is that way. Jesus is that truth. And Jesus is that life. Would you be done with the torture of sin in your life? Tired of constantly desiring it, addicted to it, and then hurt by it? Jesus can give you a new heart that has power over sin, a heart that longs for God. We are not in Christ simply made different. We are made new creatures with new hopes, new desires, new natures that are inclined to God, that actually want the things that God would have for us. Would you have all of your past sins erased, made so that you would never have to fear paying for them? Even as you lament your sins, Jesus Christ will be casting them into the depths, never to be seen again. He is quicker to forgive than you are to confess. 
Would you not fear death any longer? As surely as Christ was raised, he will raise those whom he has forgiven. Forgiveness. Think of forgiveness in our last moments here. Would you not look upon the crucified Christ, see him on the cross, look in your hand and see the hammer that drove the nails into his hands and know that it was you and your sins that nailed him there. And then as he looks on you with loving but heartbroken eyes, would you not cry out for forgiveness? Forgiveness, true forgiveness awaits you in the Son of God who has never turned away a single soul that has come to him for mercy. In him is a balm for every wound, peace for every troubled mind, rest for every tired soul, and forgiveness for every sinner. Like the ark in the flood, he is a shelter from the storm of God's wrath and the only one. He is a sure defense against the accusations of Satan, whether those be true or false. He is freedom from the broken desires inside of your sinful nature. He can make your desires new so that you can love God and love him rightly. Well, friends, there, there's only now two ways in which a person may relate to God. You can be in Adam in his covenant with God, which is already broken, already crippled, corrupted, dead, final judgment, waiting. And that's the one you're born into. That's the one you default to. Or you can be in Christ, the new and final Adam in his covenant with God, having your soul raised to new life, new creation developing reconciled to God. Someone listening might be thinking, well, I, I think since God is good, he will reward people who are doing their best. A good God will let good people into heaven. Listen closely. Jesus himself already asked for that. He prayed for that to be a possibility in the garden. And the answer was no. That's why the Son of God went up to the cross. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Good people go to heaven is legalism. That is Adam's covenant. Those are the rules in Adam's covenant. There is only one hope for you. Christ has paid the cost for a new covenant, and all we need to do is respond. And to those possible responses to the gospel, we will turn next week. Let me leave you with the words of one of my favorite hymns that we're not going to sing today. Approach my soul, the mercy seat, where Jesus answers prayer. There humbly fall before his feet, for none can perish there. 
The promise is my only plea, with this I venture nigh. Thou callest burdened souls to thee, and such, O Lord, am I. Bowed down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed, by war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. A wondrous love to bleed and die, to bear the cross and shame, that guilty sinners such as I might plead thy gracious name. Oh, Father God, thank you for your, your gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. I acknowledge the, the, the depth of my sin that I, I don't even fully understand and I'm certain there's sin you see that I don't. And Lord, if, if you were keeping a list of all those things, there's no way I could stand before you on that day of judgment and, and make any sort of case for my innocence, for my goodness. So we praise you for sending your son, for his death on the cross, paying the penalty for my sin, that on that day of judgment, I might not say, I did the best I could. Instead, say, Jesus paid it all. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would press that truth on, on the hearts and minds of people here, that my brothers and sisters in Christ would be refreshed in the knowledge that you have accomplished everything they need. And for anyone listening today, that they would be drawn to Christ and, and Holy Spirit, that you would awake their souls and they might recognize the love of God in Jesus Christ. Pray these things for the glory of the risen Christ. Amen. We approach now as we do every week the Lord's table together. And brother, you made this very easy to move from celebrating the gospel through the preaching of the word, through hearing the clear message of the gospel, to the Lord's Supper, which is the, the physical reminder, something that, that God gave us as, as a gift. We, we, we forget these things. And since we don't do a lot of the same, have a lot of the same traditions and rituals that Israel had, this isn't as part of our lives as much as it once was for God's people. God knows that we are quick to forget, that we need to be reminded in a thousand different kinds of ways for something to be able to take hold and grasp our hearts. So we need to be reminded by the preaching of the word regularly, to hear the gospel regularly. We need to be reminded in the songs that we sing we need to be reminded as we, as we memorize Scripture, as we, we memorize catechisms and other things that don't seem like fun, but they are so useful. We need to be reminded in our relationships with other believers as we sacrificially serve one another and model Christ. We need to be reminded in our marriages as we see other healthy marriages and how we see husbands sacrificing and loving their wives as Christ did the church 
all these things in a hundred different ways that the gospel is present around us. God gave us all of those things so that we could actually remember and take hold and grasp and not forget. And even still, we forget. So that, that is the, what the Lord's Supper is. It's something that God gave us, Christ instituted, so that we could remember his shed blood for us. That the realities of the gospel, the gruesomeness of a broken body and shed blood could be a reminder for us week after week as we gather with the body, as we, we drink the juice, we eat the bread, remembering that in that we are claiming Christ's sacrifice for ourselves. That, that beautiful exchange that Kent talked about where, where in taking on the body and the blood of Christ, we are receiving his righteousness as he bore our sins for us. So that is what we do. We continue to celebrate the gospel as we move into this this morning. So that it would, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians here in just a moment and then invite to come forward. And if you are someone who is trusting in Christ, if this is your claim, your confidence, the shed blood, the broken body of Christ, you are walking in faithfulness with him then you will be invited to come forward and to receive. We read in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, the words of the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he took was betrayed and took bread. When he had given they thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I would invite those for whom this is a reality in their life, I invite you to come forward to be able to grab of the elements. Uh, and in just a moment, when everybody has a chance to sit back down, we will partake of them together. Sorry. When Jesus took the bread, he had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He continued in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as I like to remind us every time we take of the Lord's Supper together, even as we look back and remember the broken body, the shed blood of Christ for our salvation, we are also given the gift of looking forward where we know that there will come a day in the consummation of, of the age that we will be able to eat and to drink, to feast in the presence of our Lord. So we do not just remember Solemnly, we look forward with rejoicing and hopeful expectation of being able to be in the presence of our Lord. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the wonder of the gospel. We can't fully comprehend. We can't fully appreciate what it costs for you to pour your wrath out on your Son 
we will spend our lives on this earth hearing of the gospel, preaching the gospel, having the gospel preached to us, seeking to model the gospel, seeing it modeled in others' lives, remembering it in communion. Time after time after time, going back to the fountain of the gospel, knowing that we will never exhaust its wonders. Thankful that it will forever be a strength to us. Anticipating the sweet worship that we will have when we see our Savior face to face and we are transformed and this body of death is done away with. And we can with clearer eyes see the wonder of what He has done and give Him the glory that is His due. We give you all the glory, all the honor, all praise. Amen.